where we began this series uh, by thinking about the many faces of fear and how we experience those. Um, and then in, this, in our second session, we began to think about the way that God speaks into our experience of fear, to, to, to combat it, to overcome it, um, and how particularly the Bible's uh, major, or God's major way of speaking, is that he speaks into our fear by saying, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Fear, it seems, is counterbalanced uh, by faith. Uh, faith in a God of, of might, a God of grace. Faith in a God who, who promises uh, to be with us. Uh, which means that we can, without fear, uh, give ourselves wholly to his service. But, but of course, it's not always nearly as easy as that, is it? It's such a very hard thing to do. I don't know if you remember the parable of the talents, um, the parable Jesus told where a master goes away on a journey and uh, distributes resources to, uh, to his servants, five to this one, two to this one, one to another, um, and, uh, and then returns uh, some time later to find out what they've done uh, with uh, uh, the bags of gold uh, that he has given to them. And the first servant steps forward and uh, tells how he's turned his five into five more. Uh, the second servant, similarly, two bags turned into, into two more. And then the third servant steps forward, and this is what he says. Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Some, something of a surprise, isn't it, that, that it is the reason that the man gives for not doing anything with the resources that he's been given is that he was afraid. And, and rather uncomfortably for us, um, in Jesus' story, the master doesn't respond to this experience of fear by saying, oh, you, oh, you poor thing. So sorry that you were afraid. Um, you know, come, let me, let me comfort you. Now, on this occasion, what we hear is, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest, that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would, re would have received it back with interest. Now, I'm not sure that we can be entirely confident precisely what went on in the heart of that third servant. But I think what we can say is that he mistook God. He mistook both who God was and what it was that God wanted. And that at some level he experienced that misunderstanding as fear. So that at some level, the, the only safe thing to do was to take absolutely no risks with the resources that he'd been given. And, and yet the, the terrible reality was that his determination to, to not risk losing everything led him to losing everything. His fear of loss was the very thing that precipitated loss. While the other servants risked much, they gained more. 
he took no risks and lost everything. Um, all of which I, I suspect means that a little bit of thinking about the connection between faith and risk and fear is well worth doing. But risk is, is all around us. You, you can't live through a, a year of a pandemic uh, as, uh, as we have at this point in history uh, without getting pretty familiar with risk, that the risk of going out, the risk of staying in, economic risks, health risks, mental health risks, risk assessments, well, they're everywhere. So how are you with risk? How would you describe yourself? Are, are you risk taker or, or are you risk averse? Are, are you naturally cautious or, or would you describe yourself as, as just a little bit reckless? And which, whichever you are, does it matter? Is it just a matter of temperament? Some people um, seem to just take risks easily and some people uh, tend to be pretty shy of risks. That's just the way they are. It doesn't really matter. Or is it a matter of faith? The, the famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, had this to say about the relationship between risk and faith. He said this, Unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, then there is no need for faith. Think he's right? And if he is, what would that mean for the risk averse amongst us? Because what if, like the third servant, we would tend to say, I'm afraid? Well, before we, we, we turn to, to look at some biblical answers to, to those kind of questions, um, I wonder whether you might just take a moment to, to consider that, um, either on your own or if, if you're with others or could, could connect with others, uh, talk with others. Um, are you basically a risk taker or are you risk averse? Do, do you have any illustrations of that that, that you can think of from uh, recent past? Um, and, and what do you think about Hudson Taylor's statement? Do you agree with it? When he says that unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Uh, take five minutes um, and just think that through or chat with others. Oh, I hope that was helpful thinking about that, um, reflecting on our own attitude to risk. Um, as we take this forward and think about uh, what the Bible might have to say to us. We're going to base ourselves um, in the third chapter of Ruth. Uh, up to now, um, the, the first couple of times we've, we've thought together, um, I've had sort of passing references to the book of Ruth, um, uh, glancing touches only. Um, today we're going to dive in much more substantially and base ourselves uh, in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, really try and get, get, get to grips with that chapter and see how it speaks into uh, the things we're thinking about um, today. Um, so let me read it to, uh, to us. Um, uh, let me read through uh, Ruth chapter 3. And as I read it, uh, just be on the lookout for connections between fear uh, and faith and risk-taking. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. 
Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. It's a striking story. Uh, lots for us to think about uh, in these verses. But at its very heart, it seems to me, is a question of the connection between the, the overruling of God and the activity that we have ourselves about the connection, if you like, between having confidence in a God who is mighty and gracious and sovereign and then the decisions that we make about what we choose to do. And, and I'd love to illustrate this with a, uh, with a story that I heard years and years ago um, in connection with uh, this chapter and that I've never quite been able to get out of my head. Um, the story goes like this. The rain was pouring in torrents as Adam set off for church that Sunday evening. And he was just reflecting how good it was that he'd repaired the leak uh, in the roof of his vintage two-seater sports car. And that was the point when he saw them, three miserable figures, uh, huddled under a single umbrella uh, at the number 51 bus stop. And he recognised uh, them at once. All were regulars at his church. First was, was old Mrs Field, 
Just last week, he'd been to her 75th birthday party and, and she'd been telling him how her arthritis played up so badly uh, in the wet weather. Um, next to her was Dr. Gomez, great family friend, who'd uh, been uh, so heroic in the way that he cared uh, for Adam's mother during her recent illness. And last, but certainly very far from least, was Sarah. Now, Adam had been really impressed by Sarah ever since they first met. There was something special about her character, her warmth. But try as he might, he'd not been able to find a way to, to take their friendship forward. Uh, was it that he was afraid of rejection? Was he just fearful of making a fool of himself? Whatever it was that the moment never seemed right, the words never seemed to come, perhaps he just never found the courage. Well, his mind was racing as he drew closer and closer to the bus stop. He kept looking at the single passenger seat beside him and at the three people stood at the bus stop. What was he to do? Who was he to choose? By the time he screeched to a very impressive halt, his mind was made up. And with great dignity, he strode from the car and tenderly helped Mrs Field into the passenger seat. But then, instead of returning to the driving seat himself, he magnanimously presented the car keys to Dr Gomez. And then with an air of, with an air of, of enormous personal self-sacrifice, he positioned himself carefully under the umbrella and next to Sarah. Waving a cheerful goodbye to Mrs Field and Dr Gomez, he began to pray that, that maybe the number 51 bus might be running a little bit late that night. And the original teller of the story rounded it off in this way. God, he said, had put Sarah at the bus stop, but Adam still had to get himself under the umbrella. You see the point. However we understand the sovereignty of God, we shouldn't read it in such a way that it, that it renders us passive. God may rule, but he still wants us to act. Well, I want to pause again at that point, if I may. Um, and, and again, just ask you for five minutes before we uh, look at some, at some things from Ruth chapter 3. Um, just, just ask, how in your experience, in your thinking, um, does your belief that God is sovereign, that he rules, how does that belief affect your risk-taking? Does it increase it, decrease it? Does it make you more passive or more active? Again, just, just discuss with, with others uh, for five minutes just now. Well, again, I hope that was a useful discussion. Um, what I want to do uh, now to, to pick up from uh, that issue is, is to, to, to pick out three things that I think uh, we can helpfully uh, reflect upon uh, from this story in Ruth chapter 3. Um, here's the first of them. That fear can distort our vision and stunt our expectations. Um, just remember for a moment all that Ruth and Naomi were facing. Um, penniless, uh, husbandless, childless, landless. They had lots and lots of nothing. 
as Naomi had put it so, so powerfully, they, they had returned empty. But then into that emptiness uh, comes hope in the form of Boaz. In an almost miraculous way, he appears on the scene. Um, you just think about it, of all the fields that Ruth could have chosen to go and glean in uh, that morning, uh, she chooses the field that belongs to Boaz. Fancy that. And then of all of the moments that, that Boaz could have chosen to turn up in his Land Rover Discovery uh, and check on his men, he chooses the moment um, when Ruth is there uh, at work gleaning in the field. Fancy that. And, and no wonder, therefore, that Naomi is beside herself when Ruth arrives home that evening and, and tells the tale. The Lord bless him, Naomi says in, in chapter 2, verse 20. That man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. And, and so after so much misery, so much loss, all those bereavements, suddenly, finally, hope begins to dawn. The possibility of, of, of a way forward. And then nothing. No phone calls, no emails, no texts. He'd seemed so keen, this fella. Paid her such attention, compliments, wine, dinner. And then he just goes silent on her. What is it with this guy? Some, I imagine, may empathise just a little bit with Ruth at this point. And it's very, very easy to see how this could have plunged Ruth and Naomi back into despair. Because in the place of, of, of dawning possibilities, discouragement takes over. In, instead of a sense that oh, God's hand is at work, they now feel perhaps as if they've been abandoned again. Neglected, disregarded, God's not doing anything, God's hand isn't in this, God isn't working this out anymore. Another false storm, another thwarted hope. God's not for us, God's not in it, after all. Fear and doubt can do just that for us, and, and maybe you have personal examples of that. Um, maybe, maybe it is, it was a relationship um, uh, where you had thought God was at work, and then uh, it draws uh, to an abrupt full stop. A, a, a job, a family reconciliation that you had such hopes for, and then somehow uh, it begins to run aground. Or, or the same thing could happen on a, on a corporate level to, to church community as a whole. Perhaps some plans for a church plant that seemed to be making such progress, but then roadblock after roadblock, uh, and everything uh, seems to, to, to be thwarted. So sure that God was guiding, so sure that he was unfolding things, uh, uh, only for it all to come unraveled all over again. And, and somehow that experience uh, causes us to, to, to sort of grind to a halt. Yeah, we stop praying, we stop planning, we stop hoping. At some level we, we, we just kind of given up. And, and fear, fear is tucked in there, isn't it? Fear that we're wasting our time. Fear that God has abandoned us. A fear that nothing that we're going to do can make any difference to this situation. And that fear uh, grinds us to a halt.
Well, that certainly can happen. We can experience just that kind of um, blocking effect um, as fear that, that God is not at work after all. But of course, the striking thing here is that that's not what happens. Um, that actually events in this chapter take a very different turn. That Ruth and Naomi could have tumbled back into despair, but they didn't. So come to our second heading. Uh, as we see the way in which faith acts, even in the face of our fears. Now, you can see this. For Ruth and Naomi, time is running out. While the harvest uh, continued on, there was always the possibility that uh, Ruth might bump into Boaz again out in the field. But harvesting, gleaning, well, it's, a, it's a temporary job. And that job is pretty much over. The harvest is coming to an end. Time is running out. Soon Boaz will be history. And, and this is the point when the story takes this most intriguing twist. For even though Ruth has no husband, uh, she does, uh, as our author very carefully points out at the end of chapter 2, Ruth does have a mother-in-law. And a mother-in-law who, it seems, uh, understands men. And that is how Ruth gets a crash course in the art of bagging your man. Because down at the threshing floor, it's party time. Tonight they thresh the grain and they celebrate the harvest. Famine is over. There's bread again in Bethlehem. And that's why Naomi is convinced that tonight is the night. So one bath, one best dress, one dose of the finest perfume later, Ruth sets out on her mission with her mother-in-law's words ringing in her ears. Don't rush. Bide your time. Wait till your man's been fed and his drink's been drunk. Wait till he settles for the night and then make your move. Uncover his feet, because that'll wake him sooner or later, and then hunker down to see what happens. When he finds you there, he'll tell you what to do. And at this point, you'd be forgiven for thinking, yeah, I bet he will. Which is why I want to pause for a moment. Um, and I want to suggest that, that you take a second to think, what exactly are we supposed to make of this, of this bizarre kind of turn of events and this extraordinarily plan and plot uh, that Naomi and Ruth embark upon? What do you think we're supposed to learn from it? Again, for, for uh, three or four minutes, either on your own or again with others, um, just ask yourself, what should we learn from what Ruth and Naomi do? Well, I would be fascinated to know uh, what your, uh, where your discussions uh, led you. Um, uh, let me share with you uh, some thoughts. First, um, I'm sure we are not intended to see this as a universally applicable blueprint uh, for getting your bloke. Uh, not everything that happens in the Bible uh, is intended to be an example that we should follow. 
So lest there be any doubt, um, if you are the parent um, of a daughter um, who is having some trouble uh, getting a young man's attention, I don't believe that it would be wise uh, to tell her to put on her best dress, to wait till he's had a few drinks, to sneak into the bottom of his bed and announce herself ready to do whatever he asks. It, not good. Not wise. Let's not go there. But, but of course, the striking thing is, however high risk this strategy may be, the fact is it works. Because as Boaz's feet do reach freezing point, he wakes with a start, senses a figure lying at his feet, and not unreasonably asks, who are you? And, and all of that triggers the happy events of chapter 4. And, and I think what we've got to say then is, even if this particular method that may be unique to Ruth, the principles that lie behind it may not be. In other words, sometimes calculated risks are right. God may be sovereign, but he doesn't intend us to be passive. And, and there are moments when it's right to seize the initiative, to, to take the bull by the horns, to make things happen. All, all the heroes of, of the faith in Scripture know that. They trust God and they act. You know, football crowds, um, they, they may sit in the stands um, and sing K sera sera, whatever will be, will be. But, but Christians ought to, ought to get on the pitch and play. Now, of course, there are, there are, there are boundaries to navigate, that there's a point when courage moves into recklessness when faith becomes folly, when bold becomes just, just frankly balmy. But even though there is that danger, I suspect that many, many of us are far too far down the risk-averse end of the spectrum, playing far too safe, that we're nowhere near the, the point of becoming excessively reckless, or doing foolishly balmy things. In other words, we are ruled more by fear than we are by faith. The sovereign rule of God ought to make us risk takers, not risk shy. In evangelism, we take the risk of inviting people. In Christian service, we step out into an area that's outside our comfort zone and unfamiliar to us maybe. In friendship, we overcome our fears and we are, make ourselves vulnerable through our honesty with others. Uh, all too often, I think, that the reason that we play safe isn't because we think it's not wise. No, the reason that we play safe is just because we don't like the idea of looking foolish. Uh, and I think the same things apply to churches as a whole. Um, how much risk are we really ready to take? Do we, do we tend to wait until every I is dotted, every T is crossed? Or, or will a moment come when our leadership says, do you know, we're just going to go for this. We're going to step out in faith in spite of the fear that our project won't fly. It's a good question to ask, wouldn't it? Both in your, in your personal life and in your life as a church. If, if we don't find that, that some things fail, 
some of our projects fail, then wouldn't might that not be an indication that we're playing too safe overall? So first, fear is capable of distorting our vision, clouding our expectations, uh, s closing things down. Which is why, secondly, faith needs to act in spite of our fears. And we do this, finally, knowing that we serve a God who delivers abundant, almost impossibly lavish grace. Uh, come back to the story. We, we left Boaz rubbing the sleep out of his eyes and the bewilderment out of his brain as he finds Ruth lying at his feet. And, and who are you and, and what are you doing there seem eminently reasonable questions. But just notice her reply um, when, when she says uh, in verse 9, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. It is such a brilliant reply. Because what she's doing is she's, she's borrowing almost the self-same words that Boaz used out in the field when they first met back in chapter 2. Do you remember what he said? Um, he said, may God repay you for what you've done. May a, a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. God bless you, Ruth, says Boaz. No, 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 no. How about you bless me, Boaz, says Ruth in reply. And it, it opens up. In other words, Ruth is saying to Boaz, you fulfill your own desire for, that, that God might bless me because you have it in your hands to do it. And it's one more example at this stage of a repeated theme in this book that, that blessing comes in, in, in unexpected and yet abundant ways. Um, the appearance of Boaz to Ruth, well, that was a surprise in chapter 2. And now Ruth's appearance at Boaz's feet, well, that's a surprise in chapter 3. And in due course, the birth of their child will be a surprise to everyone including us, when in chapter 4 we discover that this child is not just a descendant for them, not even just, though this would be big enough, a grandfather for King David, but this is the ancestor, this is the, um, this is the line of Jesus himself. It, it, it's so stunning, because of all the, the many good and upstanding um, Jewish forebears that God could have chosen from for his family line. He chooses Ruth, a Moabite widow with a grumpy mother-in-law. And, and in that we see God doing what God does. He dispenses grace. Blessing comes to the most unexpected, in, in the most unexpected ways and to the most unexpected people. And he does it this way, lest we get ideas above our station and start thinking that we deserve any of this, that, that, that something we've done has earned us uh, this blessing. So he keeps on finding ways of reminding us that blessing comes to us by grace. 
in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done. So uh, chapter, chapter three, it, well, it ends with Ruth staggering home. She's held out her shawl, uh, Boaz has filled it with grain. Um, some, uh, what is it, 30 kilograms of grain, that's sort of, kind of five stone in, in old money. And, and, it, and even that vast amount functions just as a sort of down payment, just an anticipation of, of how richly Boaz is going to bless her. Yeah, Naomi returned empty to Bethlehem. Now imagine her face as 30 kilograms of grain pours from, Naomi's, pours from Ruth's shawl and cascades around Naomi's feet. God is filling her, and in that filling he's cultivating her faith. And, and this isn't the legalistic observance um, of, of ancient kinsman redeemer laws. Boaz is going far beyond those. Now this is extravagant race, grace, much more than, than, than could have been expected from Boaz. And there is more to come. And, and, and in this episode, as we finish, we need to, to recognise that, that we're seeing an anticipation of Christ. Um, Christ is the, is the greater Boaz. For he too deals with us not by law, but by grace. And, and in a sense, Naomi and Ruth dared to dare this plan because of what they knew of Boaz, because of the confidence they had in his character, in the man that they believed him to be convinced that he wouldn't take advantage of Ruth, that he saw her as a respectable woman, just as he was a respectable man, that he could be trusted with their daring, risky plan. And we do likewise. We trust in our greater Boaz. We trust in a Christ who has loved us to death. And the reason that we can find courage to face our fears, the reason that we can find courage to, to take risks, the reason that we can find courage to be bold for God is because of what we know of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So who are you? risk-taker or risk-averse. Whatever we may be by nature, by temperament, what we seek to become are those who, in recognising that we come under the wings of Christ our Redeemer, we can therefore be bold in risk-taking endeavours of faith for Christ. I want to suggest that um, we close now um, and, and invite you to, to reflect on these things um, on your own. Um, some words come up on the screen now um, to, to reflect on whether or not there, there's an area in your life where you need to respond 
to what God is saying in this chapter, to what God is saying to us this, uh, this day. To respond with bold, risk-taking faith. Is there such an area, such a situation in your life? Well, bring that before the Lord now. Uh, pray to him as you reflect on this. Uh, that's what we'll do uh, as we finish now.